Hi, and welcome to another episode of Sustainably Speaking. I'm your host, Joshua Baca. On our last episode, we talked with Dominic DeMondo from Green Mantra and Bill Cooper from Cyclix about the business and environmental case for advanced recycling. This week, we build on that conversation with a deeper dive into the science and engineering behind advanced recycling and the role it plays in accelerating the circular economy for plastics. There are often some misconceptions about what advanced recycling is and what advanced recycling isn't. This episode tackles the issue of advanced recycling from a science and engineering perspective. And if you haven't listened to our last episode about the business and environmental case for advanced recycling, download wherever you get your podcast. So let's get into it. Joining me are two leading academics in the field of chemical engineering, Dr. Rachel Meidel of Rice University's Baker Institute and Dr. Marco Castaldi of City College of New York. Dr. Castaldi, Dr. Meidel, thank you for taking some time to be with us today. We're going to dive into the topics of sustainability and circularity. And Dr. Castaldi, can you tell us a little bit about what you do for the engineering department at the City College of New York? Sure. So I'm with the chemical engineering department of City College of New York, teach basic chemical engineering fundamentals, design processes, and the Earth Engineering Center is really focused on extraction of energy, inherent energy, and the materials that are in in different waste streams. It mostly focuses on municipal solid waste and all of those different components, but we've looked across all of the different individual streams, from plastics, film, and rigid plastics, all the way to biomass and actually human and um, animal wastes. Graduate students, PhDs, They normally take a liking to the idea of using waste materials and extracting them as resources uh, for energy and materials. And a lot of them work all the way from, say, the EPA and regulatory bodies to like uh, BASF that actually makes some of these products. And Rachel, as a fellow at the Baker Institute, can you tell us a little bit about what that is and some of the work you're doing there? So my work as a fellow at the Baker Institute is I develop and lead a lot of different interdisciplinary data-driven research programs. And some of those things involve energy and environment, sustainability, climate resiliency, things like circular economy. We're hearing a lot about that. Life cycle thinking, looking at things holistically and globally, do work on trade and transportation and hazardous materials, hazardous waste management, which is the foundation of my background. And so a lot of this work is used in a way to help bring science to the forefront of decision-making in the policy front. And so it's used to help guide strategies on a variety of pressing issues that pertain to these issues. We've developed at the Baker Institute and through Rice University a number of different partnership programs where we collaborate with industry, academia, governments, institutes, nonprofit organizations to help elevate all of these different issues when it comes to decarbonization strategies and the energy transition and how to do this in a sustainable manner. And Marco, let's pick up a little bit there where Rachel was talking about science. What is sustainability and how does science play a critical role in guiding the work around sustainability? Science is at the core for a couple of reasons. I think science and sustainability, it's using the technologies, developing processes, testing theories, and then figuring out 
where you are most efficiently using the resources that are required to sustain the livelihoods that uh, society needs. And that goes anywhere from just convenience to basic necessities and health. You can't make a truly informed decision unless you drill down and get quantitative measurements and have that data inform what is the best process or technology or methodology that will most efficiently use the resources that human society needs to maintain a healthy and a sustainable life. And you can go across things like preserving resources for the next generation and so on. But we're going to use materials. We're going to use energy. That's been shown to really improve the quality and life of, of humans. And the question is, how do you responsibly extract those, use them, reuse them as much as you can? That's great. And Rachel, picking up where Marco left off there, can you tell us a little bit about what a circular economy is and how science guides that work as well? Yes, yeah, sure. And circular economy, I mean, it is really gaining a foothold in discussions today, whether that's in the political arena or scientific fields. I mean, even corporate strategies, we're seeing a lot of circular economy um, built right into this. And so a circular economy and all these other different strategies, and it conveys a sensible benefits like reduction of extraction of virgin natural resources and uh, resource security and regeneration and those things. And so we're hearing a lot about what this is, and it's oftentimes used in conjunction with sustainability and oftentimes synonymously with sustainability, but they're very different disciplines and the concepts are vastly distinct, but there is a relationship. It increases resource efficiency. It tries to keep materials in use, decoupling that growth from the consumption of finite resources. And it's done through things like responsible sourcing, recycling, reuse, repair, and remanufacturing And there. You know, I think when we look at integrating science and data with this. I mean, our society and, and the world, we are, are changing rapidly. And policymakers need scientific evidence to guide decisions on these complex issues. And so whether you're an academic or a scientist working in the public or private sector, the principles of scientific integrity are foundational in order to ensure that we conduct science objectively, that we present results fairly and accurately, avoiding conflicts of interest and making decisions that are free from political interference or personal motivation. So research integrity is really about the performance of research to the highest ethical standards of professionalism, rigor and objectivity. And this is really important because it builds public trust and ultimately our ability to protect human health and the environment. So we have to really leverage data and analysis and insights in a way that taps into the principles of scientific integrity, because that's going to help overcome some of the systemic biases and achieve better policy outcomes. And in the world of sustainability and circular economy, they're very complex issues. And so it's important that we begin with um, sound data and science and we do it in a systematic way. And, and if we can, in a way that's harmonized. Marco, you're uh, widely recognized as being an expert in advanced recycling and have done research that has guided a lot of companies and industries today. Can you give us an understanding or help our listeners understand what is advanced recycling? Advanced recycling, I would say, in summary, is technologies that are developing or are developed that are not the conventional mechanical recycling. 
So when we think about recycling, the common process is you have a bottle or a can or you know, glass and plastic, and you'll send that to a sorting facility and that facility then mechanically separates glass, plastic, metal, other things as well, paper and so on. But it's all done mechanically. You're not changing the chemical structures of it. You're a lot of times, say, with uh, cans and so on, almost not even changing the forms until later. And what you end up with in a typical mechanical recycling uh, effort is streams of purer types of materials, all plastic in one stream, all glass in another stream, cans in another stream. And then each one of those streams will go on to some level of processing. Metal will get melted down and then recast as things. Glass will get melted down and recast and the same thing with plastics. So that's the typical mechanical recycling that we think of. Advanced recycling, one might think of as kind of the chemical side of that where instead of taking a plastic bottle, melting it down to make another plastic bottle, what you're trying to do is take disparate types of plastic, melting them down, maybe chemically processing them with catalysts or other types of input chemicals to then yield a, let's call it feedstock type of material that can be made into a number of other different products. And so I think the reason why it's called advanced or being thought of as advanced recycling you know, because they have a lot of functionality that can be adjusted using chemicals, thermal treatments, and so on to kind of homogenize all of these different types of plastic and bring them to a usable homogeneous feedstock that then can go and make another bottle, but can make furniture, building materials, and so on. That's different, like I said, than mechanical recycling, where we're going to get just, say, certain types of bottles, and then we're going to make bottles again. And Rachel, I'd like to bring you in there. Dr. Castali gives a great summary about what advanced recycling is. Where does advanced recycling fit into the conversations and the work we were just talking about around circular economies? Where does advanced recycling fit into a circular economy? So when we look at circularity, it's all about reinserting materials back into the value chain, keeping things at an economic value. And that's the role advanced recycling can play because we are chemically converting post-use and difficult to recycle materials back to the original building blocks that can be continually reintegrated into supply chains, whether as feedstocks for new chemicals or materials, other raw materials for manufacturing, and lower environmental footprint print of fuels uh, without the need for virgin materials. And so I think it fits in well with the whole idea of circularity. But we need the right public support and the right policies in place for that. But it does have a place in the role of circularity because it retains value of plastics and it it keeps that molecule in play for as long as possible. And that's the whole idea of a circular economy. And so when we look at the role of plastics and the role of recycling and we look at things like how do we attain sustainability goals and global climate commitments? There is a role for plastics in in all of this. I mean, we can't meet our goals um, without understanding the inputs 
and materials that are required to take us to that next level, whether they're wind turbine blades, solar panels, or lithium ion batteries. And so when we start looking at end of life management of these things, I mean, you know, because innovation and technology is one thing upstream, but then we have to think about what happens at the end of life. Things like advanced recycling is a type of innovation and disruptive technology that can certainly play a part in the role of circularity. And could you elaborate on one thing you mentioned really quickly? You talked about advanced recycling being foundational for a lower environmental footprint. What does that mean for our average listener out there? When we look at things like advanced recycling, you know, that has the potential to move the needle on, let's say, you know, the influx of plastic waste. I look at things holistically. I look at things from a systems view. And so when you look at things from a systems level, you look at all of the different factors, all of the different environmental elements, the social and the economic, and you look at that across the entire life cycle throughout the entire supply chain. And it's really about understanding the risks. If we are using other materials that would replace plastics, what are their carbon footprints? You know, what are their emissions? What are the waste generation? Uh, What are the social impacts, um, both upstream from a sourcing standpoint? And then how is that managed at at the end of life and, and looking at things like the network transportation throughout all of that? And when you look at things holistically and you look at the entire systems impact. Oftentimes, what we're seeing with some of the alternative materials that would replace plastics is that they have a higher environmental footprint. And a lot of those actually do not take into account the social element or the economic element or things like uh, what are the impacts in developing economies. And when you start aggregating all of those, it paints a very different picture of what sustainability is and if our actions are truly circular. And so I think it's important when we do look at advanced recycling We don't prematurely omit types of technologies or or types of materials that have the potential to meet global climate targets and sustainability goals. And so from a system standpoint, policies should be technology neutral and focus on the desired end state. And if that's sustainability and decarbonization, then we should focus broadly on the carbon content and overall life cycle metrics rather than prematurely excluding a technology that has the potential to get us across that finish line or at least get us closer to that. So I think there should be greater focus on on outcomes rather than pre-selecting materials or technologies. Because again, it's about the balance between the economics, the least energy intensive pathways and the best environmental and social outcomes across the life cycle. This is sustainability. I just wanted to comment and follow up on something that was said because it it made a good point about mechanical recycling and advanced recycling. When Rachel said that, like, let's say plastics, it brings it back to its building blocks. This is important because in a mechanical process, a lot of times there's a working of the material. And again, you're not chemically changing it. Just imagine you're chopping it up and then just kind of slightly melting it down to kind of have it form the same type of plastic again, but now that it's kind of like in an ingot, you could then recast it back to a bottle or something like that. The more you work these materials mechanically, they lose some of their properties. And this is important. You can't forever mechanically continually process something. I mean, just think of something like a piece of metal, just like a, like a metal fork. If you bend it once, you could bend it back and straighten it out. If you keep bending it, it's going to eventually break, right? This is something metal fatigue. Very similar thing happens with paper. Very similar thing happens with plastic. They get altered during the mechanical process. At some point, 
You can't mechanically work them anymore and expect them to perform the same way. That is also where this advanced recycling comes in because it's not mechanically transforming it or working it anymore. As Rachel said, it's bringing it back to its building blocks. And that's why it's so important that we tap into as many technologies that we can. And we need both mechanical recycling and advanced recycling to get us ahead and to meet some of these um, recycling goals that we have. And because in actuality, most of the material is not eligible for recycling in mechanical systems. And, you know, most of the materials that are, they're downcycled. And so they eventually have an end of life. And so even those materials that eventually are downcycled into other materials, we still have to contend with the millions of metrics of tons of plastics that's entering the waste stream every year globally and understand that a large percent of that cannot be recycled in conventional systems. And so if we don't start considering innovative technologies like advanced recycling, then we have to be comfortable with the outcome. Once they leave the mechanical system, that's things like landfilling or incineration, waste to energy, um, or exporting to countries where you kind of lose sight of the accountability and the transparency around that. Hi, during this short break, I want to encourage you to visit americasplasticmakers.org and download our new policy vision for accelerating a circular economy for plastics. Leaders from across our industry are united to propose a federal path forward that will help move our nation towards a more sustainable future. Now back to the show. Dr. Meidel, a few seconds ago, you talked about mechanical recycling and advanced recycling, and you said most material is not eligible for mechanical recycling. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is there is about 90% of plastics can't be recycled in current systems using our traditional mechanical technology. And that's because our plastics are so complex. They're multi-material. They're highly customized. They're contaminated. There's a lot of additives. All of these things prohibit management in existing systems. Now, we, we can certainly improve some of the technologies around that using advanced robotics or enhanced optic recognition technologies and improved artificial intelligence to help advance some of these recycling processes, but there truly are fundamental limitations that inhibit these traditional methodologies from recovering all the different polymer families on the market, and that's entering the end-of-life waste stream. And that's where the various advanced recycling technologies and platforms come into play because they have the ability to transform those and, again, take it back to its original building blocks. And so it really does harmonize well with where society wants to go from a circular perspective. I mean, that was, you know, an excellent point that Rachel made. Think about the complexity of the plastic. Think about a potato chip bag. And this this will stick in my mind forever because we do a lot of our own testing. Not only do we work with companies and technologies and processes at the industrial scale, but, but we do our own testing in the lab and we do our own experimentation in the lab. So we get what we consider our unbiased raw data that we can process and understand it really to the base level. And one of the work that we had done was taking hard to recycle or as, as Rachel put it, you know, not eligible for mechanical recycling, things like potato chip bags, and we process them thermally. And what we found to me was surprising after rendering it as an oil, after combusting it and recovering the energy from it, there was always this residual that was left. My students were looking at it and said, 
you know, Professor Castaldi, these plastics, they're not supposed to have an ash in there. They're not supposed to have the residual. But time and time again, we were seeing this residual. What was that residual? Well, we analyzed it. It was the metals that were put into the potato chip bag. And that metal that was in there was to ensure that the potato chips stayed fresh and so on. But mechanically, you could not separate that. The thermal process where you yielded the oil, you know, as we just spoke about and kind of homogenizing, left over the metal. Now you're able to recover the metal. And so things that aren't eligible for recycling, I like the way it was, it was stated, is because you can't take that laminated, that sandwiched plastic film that has these additives, as Rachel mentioned, you know, in this case, it was a metal, and you can't mechanically pull that apart and separate and get that metal back. But if you thermally process it, now you can. Dr. Castaldi, sometimes there are some misconceptions that advanced recycling is a form of incineration. What is the scientific difference between incineration and advanced recycling? I think this is one of the main misperceptions that are out there. Incineration uses combustion, right? So high temperatures are burning to basically inert or render materials non-hazardous in the environment. Think of bio-wastes, okay? They harbor pathogens and disease vectors and so on. You'd incinerate those to basically sterilize them. And there would not be a lot of uh, interest in trying to recover any materials from that, trying to recover the energy from that, because the main goal would be to just sterilize it. That's incineration. It's also used for hazardous materials. When you have the same type of process where you're putting garbage or even plastics, you can recover the energy from it. So now think of taking the plastics or garbage or paper that can't be recycled, but with the added constraint and design specification of extracting as much energy as you can. So if you burn, say, a ton of garbage, that'll yield about 650 kilowatts of energy. What that means is that's that's 650 kilowatts of energy that did not have to be generated by another source, say, such as natural gas or, or coal or something. That's waste to energy. So there's a difference there. And, and it's in these types of design differences that make up what advanced recycling is. It'll use a thermal process. But again, there's an added goal. The goal in advanced recycling and using high temperatures is not to make energy right away. It's to then yield an output product that can be transformed. If it's a fuel, then that, yes, that will go to an energy source. If it's a homogeneous feedstock, that can be transformed to other types of products, uh, not only plastics, but other things. So while incineration, waste energy, and advanced recycling use a high temperature thermal process, the added design constraints, the added goals of what they're trying to get out of it actually make them quite different. And is it fair to say, Dr. Custaldi, that incineration could often mean the end of life for a product like a plastic pouch, but advanced recycling is giving that product new life and creating a feedstock for new material? Yeah, I think that would be fairly accurate where I wouldn't send the plastic to an incinerator. I would send the plastic to a waste energy facility because that plastic material is at its end of its life. I would at least want to extract the inherent energy that's in that plastic. Whereas advanced recycling, 
that plastic is mechanically at the end of its life. And then chemically, yeah, I can transform it and have it take on a different product or a new life. Sure. Dr. Meidel, I think you wanted to, to jump in here. Going back to, you know, life cycle assessments and when we look at things across the system and, you know, not across the product, not across the material, not across a technology, but looking things across the system, things like life cycle assessments could conceivably challenge the whole idea of what society's idea of sustainability is and the whole ingrained waste hierarchy that is the foundation of waste management policy, the hierarchy of, of reduce, reuse, recycle, compost, waste to energy, landfill. So when you look at things across a systems level, it could be that from a life cycle perspective, things like some forms of recycling could be less favorable uh, than, say, managing waste in a permitted landfill or a waste to energy system. When we look at things across the system's level, the outcome could necessarily be misaligned with society's idea of circularity or even sustainability because lower income societies, developing economies that don't necessarily have the technology, the resources, the capacity, capabilities to build advanced systems. It could be that things like waste to energy is the most optimal choice. It could be the most economical, uh, socially stable choice. And, and I know that runs counter to conventional wisdom and is not necessarily politically or socially compatible. Let's bring this home for our listeners really quickly. You both are clearly very passionate about circularity and environmental sustainability. What led you both to focus your careers on these topics? Well, I think for me, it was all of my earlier roles that I, I had throughout my 25-year career, beginning as a hazmat field chemist. And so I, I had the opportunity to work in a variety of different segments across the supply chain. And I, I largely manage different ways from industries across the world. And so I had insight and knowledge and firsthand experience and seeing the vast volumes of hazardous waste plastics that were being generated from and, and disposed of across the world. And so it really sparked my interest in end-of-life management technologies, uh, policies. What can we do to avert this from an earlier stage, you know, upstream. And so my interest in waste management was something that stemmed from early on. And then it, it just uh, grew throughout my career to the point where I wanted to start influencing policies that are grounded in science and data. So I, I've had the fortunate opportunity to be able to amalgamate all of these things and combine both my love of science with uh, the policymaking sphere in an area and a discipline that has been the foundation of my career for many years. Dr. Castaldi? I'm, I'm sorry, Joshua. I don't get asked this question very often, so I'm going to have to give you the full answer. It's not going to take too long, but it's going to be a little bit of a winding path. I grew up in New York City, and you could imagine the amount of garbage that's generated there, but I'll never forget the sanitation strike that occurred. And within days, the mountains of garbage that piled up, I mean, you literally couldn't walk through the streets. I couldn't believe it. And I thought, wow, it doesn't just go away. It, it actually is going somewhere. And I wonder, love combustion, you know, any, every kid loves to burn stuff. So fast forward to uh, now me going through UCLA. Um, and here I get to get a PhD in this and keep burning stuff. Now I could do it for a living. And, you know, my father was asking, oh, well, you know, what are you going to do with your life? You're only burn stuff. After I got my degree, I said, well, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to continue to burn stuff. You know, when I got to Columbia, I said, okay, so 
how am I going to take my combustion background and reinvent myself that I'm not just doing what I did in industry? And that's when it hit me. I said, you know, all of this damn garbage that no one really understands the impact that it has, what they're doing with it, where it goes. Can't we get something out of this? And sure enough, as I did some research and I learned, there is these waste energy facilities. And that's what just drove me down that path. And of course, once you deal with waste streams, you cannot ignore the idea of recycling, reuse, and so on. And then over the years, it all kind of came together. But that's how I got started, seeing the garbage built up in New York City. Final question for both of you. What advice do you have for the next generation of scientists and engineers and chemists who might be thinking about doing research or studying areas around sustainability and circularity? Well, I think for me, it's don't forget the importance of the system's perspective. Sustainability and circularity are really complicated and multifaceted issues. And it's very tempting to make assumptions and draw conclusions on what we believe is the right path forward. But we can't forget about the importance science can play in understanding the system's perspective. And and it's not just uh, one discipline. It is sustainability and the world of waste management is multidisciplinary. It combines the social sciences with physics and chemistry and engineering and economics is foundational to this as well. So it's really important to open up your portfolio and expand your knowledge base and to collaborate and find ways to partner. And that's one of the most valuable things that I have done throughout my career is I have not been afraid to push the boundaries of what I learn and how I learn. And so I have a number of different disciplines within my my portfolio. And that's something that has been very, very valuable for me to help understand the different perspectives um, that we're faced with and the different challenges that we have. A lot of what Rachel said, I agree with 100%. I would add that um, the next generation needs to inform themselves as long as you can read and think critically or just think. There is so much information that is out there and we spoke about scientific information, right? There is literature that anyone could read and the scientific method is to do something present the results publish it and give enough information in that publication that someone else could reproduce it and if that's the case then now we know that yes it's been reproduced in different places this is likely what the actual process is and technology is and the next generation needs to read that information and inform themselves to come to the decision that kind of the data and the science are telling them. Dr. Meidel, Dr. Castaldi, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sustainably Speaking. And a huge thank you to Dr. Meidel and Dr. Castaldi for joining us. Please leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcast, and be sure to spread the word about the Sustainably Speaking podcast with your friends or colleagues. We will be back in your podcast feeds with a new episode after Labor Day. I look forward to Sustainably Speaking again soon.